I'm here. <laughs> you're doing. Gonna, you're doing what? I'm looking to log out. I had to go back to Vindicator's Rest, which is where the guy is that's going to give me credit for killing the mutated Tangler and the enraged Ravager. That's it's, crazy. Yeah, Vindicator's Rest. Wait, so mutated Tanglers and enraged Ravishers are lying together? That's just, that's weird. It's like the lion and the lamb, dude. It's chaos. Alright. I'm going to back up and quit out of that, and I'm ready to go. You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, the official podcast of FlashOfSteel.com. I am your host, Troy Goodfellow. And with me today are two of, well, your favorite panelists and mine, uh, freelance writer Tom Chick. Can I get anyone a coffee? Dang it. Did they have good coffee in Hawaii? How do you know I was in Hawaii? That's, that's, uh, that's, Everybody that's confidential. Knows. Everybody knows you're in Hawaii. Actually, Hawaii does have Kona coffee, which I'm not terribly fond of, so some people would say yes. I, being the uh, picky fellow that I am, would say no. And with Tom, we have Dr. Bruce Garrick. Hello, gamers. Oh, God. Oh, that's just like nails on a chalkboard. Is that how you guys feel when I say, does anyone want a coffee? Uh, kinda. Alright, wow. Well, I'm going to keep doing it. Huh? Oh, I know. I'm not saying we shouldn't. People kind of expect it now. Uh, today we have Tom and Bruce to talk about uh, probably one of our favorite uh, classic strategy game series, and that is the Imperialism series. Uh, one we've talked about in many of our design discussions, uh, developed by Frog Software, uh, published Frog City. Frog, Frog City Software. And Frog pub- Software sounds really cute, though. I like the, the idea of Frog Software. That's adorable. Sure. <laughs> yes. They make iPhone games, I bet. <laughs> That'd be Frog Town or Frogville. Yeah. All right, so we cut you off. I'm sorry, Troy. <laughs> That's okay. Frog City uh, Software and published by Strategic Simulations uh, Inc. SSI, one of the great strategy game publishers uh, of the 80s and 90s. And I think they kind of this was their last really big, great game. I think the Imperialism games and there are games that offer a lot of lessons for designers and for players as to you know what to expect. Uh, what a good strategy game looks like, and why we can't have nice things, why they don't make games uh, like this anymore. Uh, I think there are thought of uh, lessons in imperialism for you know the business and for designers and for players, and it's a, this is something I want to do more of on the podcast is take a look at a classic series and a classic game from the past and see how it uh, illuminates what we're going through right now. Uh, Bruce, uh, in the waning days of Computer Games Magazine, you wrote an essay about imperialism, correct? Yes, I did. And what was the theme of that essay? Creepiness. Oh, I bet it was awesome. I can see it now. <laughs> Could you read us part of that essay, Bruce, in your creepy gamer voice? Uh, creepy gamer voice is always scary. It can only be brought out in uh, certain situations. I don't know. Do we, do we actually have that? I don't actually have that... Uh but I can find it. We want to take a. I can actually probably find it too. I can just take a break for a second. Mm-hmm. No, I, well, tell us what. So how come? Because I'm jealous. How come you get to write a whole essay on imperialism too? On what basis did you get to do this? It's not fair. I want to write about imperialism too. I probably just sent Steve Bauman an email, and he probably was bored and didn't. Nobody else asked him, so he probably said yes for that reason alone. I wish I'd thought of that. Well done. Uh, yeah. The revisionist history series. Yes, I wrote a couple for, for that. For two, I wrote oh. about uh, one of my favorite games, which was uh, Seven Cities of Gold, which hopefully we can talk about at some point yep. uh, in another another time. 
and um, oh, here it is, Impretro, yeah. And uh, I read it now. Actually, I'm, I'm skimming through it, and and it's kind of uh, I don't know. It's a little, uh, it's a little self-conscious. It's not actually. I don't feel it's one of my better pieces, um, but uh, I think that the thing that really um, that well, we we can talk about all the things that imperialism right. gets right and that the imperialism series gets right. I think the imperial we should talk about imperialism versus imperialism two. They're kind right. of different games. The system is the same, but they really kind of work out differently. Yeah. But uh, I guess the the thing that really hit me about um, about the game is just its pacing and how, uh, you know, when you play it, you realize that there's not a whole lot more micromanagement at the beginning, or the, at the end than there is at the beginning, but the game sort of builds up this sort of, uh, you know, tension throughout the game, and then all of a sudden it just all kind of, as the as the great powers start fighting, it all sorts of comes out at the end. But it's like the last ten percent of the game, and you you spend ninety percent of the game, you know, preparing for the last ten percent. Go ahead, Tom. And, well, and, and and I think part of the lesson that can be learned here that I, I wish other strategy games specifically would look at is uh, how to deal with this end game sprawl. Like in Civilization, yeah. uh, necessarily as the game goes on, you are doing more complex things, and you are doing more things, and you have more things to do those more complex things with. Uh, and so if you play a game of Civilization for you know 10 hours, and then you walk away from it for a few days, when you sit back down to that game of Civilization, it's incredibly daunting, and you're like, screw this, I'm just going to start a new game. Uh, Imperialism 2, and I don't remember the first, I don't remember a lot of the distinctions between the two of them, but the Imperialism games have a brilliant mechanic for dealing with that, that in-game sprawl, and it's namely that centralized screen for production and labor and transportation. There's actually three screens, but yep. it's all in one place, and it all represents your, your capital city back home. And you never, everything you're doing, I mean, there's a lot of map stuff, but, but the, the bulk of what you're doing is on those three screens, whether you're just starting your game or whether you're, you, you know, 10 hours into it. Uh, it's just a beautiful mechanic that I think also fits in really, really well with the basic theme. It's one of those, those rare games where the theme and the mechanics really just, just fit together perfectly. They're just two pieces of one part. Uh, and and I, I don't think many games have accomplished that since then, as, as well as Imperialism 2 did. Well, that's something I really want to get into, because this is something that uh, Soren Johnson talked about at GDC this year. He said that in a lot of games, you know, you have the themes and the mechanics, and they're in conflict. You think a game is about one thing, and in fact, so it's something else altogether. That civilization is not really about history. It's about uh, god-power fantasies. History is just the veneer you put on top of it. That sci-fi games are so popular because you can stick whatever mechanics you want on it, and the theme's just there for whatever reason. Uh, Alpha Centauri, you could argue, is about our politics, not about future space politics. Um, what is it you think makes the uh, imperialism theme and mechanics in sync? I want you to elaborate a bit on that. Do you want me to, can I take that? Yeah. Do you want that? Yeah, go. I, I think what it does and what it, what it clicks, where it clicks for me personally, is it creates this idea of a stagnant old world that goes out and basically eats up the treasure from a new world and then uses that treasure to conquer the old world. It's this idea of here's where I'm stuck in order to prevail in this 
place, I'm going to go out to, into this Eden, this, this untamed wilderness full of, of great resources and treasure, and then I'm going to use that and bring it back in order to conquer this old world. Uh, the, the mechanics fit that with the centralized mm-hmm. city, the fact that you're playing on a map of the old world, it's there, and for the longest time you just ignore it. <laughs> but yeah. everything you're doing on the new world has to be brought back into the old world. Because the way you win a game of Imperialism 2 is you, you control more than half of the old world. You have to eat, you know, France or Britain or Portugal or whatever. You, you, that's the prize at the end. Uh, that, that whole colonial conquest is just in service of the state, as it were. Uh, and, and I think that's a lot of what imperialism was about. The, the actual act of imperialism is you grow your empire to beat the other empires, uh, I guess. And in the original imperialism, uh, the goal was to win a vote, of get a majority vote or something in the Grand Imperial Congress Council, whatever. So you once again had to have a plurality of either allies, friends, somebody, you had to browbeat into voting for you, either by bringing them into your empire or by just conquering their provinces, because all the provinces had votes. So it was the same uh, idea all the way through. Now, you can, yeah. you can still win over territory in yeah. the old world without necessarily conquering them. Right. So that's kind of still there. Right. Uh, Bruce, yeah. do you agree with that? So I would expect you to challenge my assessment of the colonial era. Go. Why? Just because you said it? Well, that's a pretty yeah, good exactly. guess. Um, I mean, I think that, uh, I think that's the real, I think that's the thing that Imperialism 1 was missing, because I don't know how much you played Imperialism 1, but Imperialism 1 was a very set-piece game. You had these, yeah. all these powers, and, uh, you sort of, there was a lot, um, there was a lot less tension in that game. As I recall, uh, and it's been a long time since I played, one of the things, Imperialism 2 really kind of struck me when I, when I played it after having played Imperialism, the first Imperialism, uh, Imperialism 2 is a lot more difficult game. Uh, it focus, there's, there's so much focus on food. Um, you can really, really cripple yourself um, if you don't have... A, the, the, uh, I think in, in Imperialism 1, you could make up food deficits by buying canned food. Yeah. Uh, is, is, it, is that my remembering correctly? Yeah, you you could you can make canned food or you could buy it. Yes. Yeah. In Imperialism Two, you don't have any of that, and and, and especially if you're doing the, uh, the like the whatever normal difficulty where you have the, the the where you have to have the the, the fish and the or the, the the grain and the meat, so you could fish or or or, or meat, and then you had to have grain, and uh, you were really really. Uh, stretched for resources, and uh, at the very beginning, I mean, you could lose the game in, like, the first 10, 20 turns by not getting enough uh, food and then not being able to build up your uh, your labor force. There are a whole bunch of differences that I think, uh, you know, there's kind of minor differences between uh, Imperialism 1 and 2. I remember, I think, in Imperialism 1, you you actually built, like, buildings that did, that did um, uh, resource production, and I think the ratios were all... It was a lot more complicated. Imperialism 2 was just like, two of these make this, two of these make this other thing. Uh, everything was like this kind of two-to-one kind of pyramid thing. Um, but uh, but it was much it was a much more... a much tighter game and, and, and much more demanding game. Um, but I will agree with Tom that, um, you know, much like in uh, Darren Aronofsky's The Fountain, 
Ah, uh, I wanted to be the one to bring that up. You jerk. I was going to bring that up. Yeah, there's this kind of like, you know, sort of uh, idyllic, uh, you know, old or uh, new world where, you know, all the, you know, luxuries and, and, and good, you know, um, all good flows from the, you know, the uh, exploitation of the new world. But, uh, right. you know, ultimately it's, uh, well, it, I was going to say ultimately it's, you know, it's fatal, but it's not actually ultimately wins you the game. But, um uh, I think that's the thing that the original imperialism lacked. It has, and, and it's it's this really awesome uh, uh, sort of marriage of, of two different play styles, um, and 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 you have the uh, you know the old world where everything is sort of uh, um, uh, you know everybody is, is is arrayed against one another, and then you have this this new world where you you uh, you do the you know the explore, you find the resources. Uh, you know, you find gems, you find treasure, um, and you have to, you actually have to use the old world, the, sorry, it keeps reversing the two, you have to use the new world for uh, advancement in the old world because the key to, the, to imperialism too is that uh, as you get luxuries, your workers become much, much more productive. I think yeah. the first new, the first level of improved workers like four times, and the, and the next level is even more, it's like ten or or 12, something like that. I mean, much more productive than even your second-level worker. And the only way to get those workers is to, is to basically pay them with luxuries that you can only get in the new world. So everybody's forced to... You, you, you can't play the game as, you know, well, I'm just going to ignore that, you know, not exploit the new world and just fight the battle in the old world because uh, you can't... You'll, you'll, you'll be completely swamped by uh, the uh, your uh, enemy's... Um, labor force in short order so uh it 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 gives you a really good incentive to go and and then just exploring and kind of uncovering the map and finding these uh these resources and building plantations and that kind of thing i mean it it really uh it really uh does uh evoke this kind of um world discovery kind of meme like uh like like seven cities of gold right Uh, but uh, but it avoids all the you know it avoids a whole bunch of pointless complication, and uh, like Tom said, you know you have this centralized uh, screen or set of screens that basically run everything, and no matter how many plantations you have, they all basically boil down to a number where you have you know X sugarcane or you know Y uh, tobacco that you can make right. into you know into uh, cigars. Or fur to make into fur hats, and then you pay your workers. And uh, one one of the things that I like, though, that it does, Bruce, out on the map, and with that sense of discovery, is you are applying an infrastructure, but you don't then have to manage it. I think of uh, the the colonialism game that, mm-hmm. that recently came out, and it's all about not just building the infrastructure, but then moving the goods along it. I mean, it, it plays like Railroad Tycoon or something uh, long after, and that, that becomes more and more complex as the game goes on uh, more and more. But imperialism, there's that sense of going out into this map that you've discovered, laying an infrastructure over it, but then not having to manage it. You know, you set the infrastructure up, and then it's all in that central transport screen, uh, and I love the fact that you discover the world and you still have to kind of domesticate it, but you don't have to get into the nitty-gritty of how many hats move through this province to this right. port. 
right. using this many ships. Like the whole naval abstraction that they use, some people complained about with oh, the way you move troops people. around. Because you, yeah, because they you didn't. The naval combat was mostly made. The naval system was basically there to make you make you have enough guns to land your troops. It was very abstracted for a period which is so big in a naval combat. A lot of people were. This doesn't feel right. This is not as true to the period uh, as so many of the other systems are. Right, and also, though, enough ships to move your goods. I mean, your transport, you had to basically leave ships and uh, doing nothing else so that they could cart goods around. Uh, That was an important part of it as well. and, and yeah, so what? What exactly? What? So what's the complaint? It's it, there was, the typical complaint was that it, they were teleporting troops. Yeah, uh, which I think is a little unfair because you could still you could beat up someone's navy and he couldn't move troops around. Uh, but I think that that was one of the abstractions. Like Bruce, you talked about the two goods make one good. That very clear pyramid, and I, I feel that that was another instance of where they went for simplicity rather than any sort of historical complexity. And I think the game benefited from that philosophy for the most part. Uh, I I love that it has discrete units of resources rather than quantities. You know, it's got a board game feel in that you're never building up a pile of stuff. You're just using these discrete units each turn. Uh, And that's part of what makes it easy to manage even during the late game sprawl. But I feel that philosophy was also what was behind this idea of teleporting troops that some people objected about. And I think the game was stronger for it. I think that, you know, I don't think a game could get away with this anymore. I think this is, this game is uh, sort of an artifact or a relic of uh, sort of a period of development of computer games. And um, I actually have a giant theory about this that I'll just happen to just drop on you guys at some point, probably right now. Everybody loves your theories, Bruce. Let's hear so, it. my theory is that you can never have this again. And I think for a very specific reason. I think it has this also has to do with flight sims. But I think that a certain type of computer strategy game, computer strategy games have completely gone haywire. They, they, they now require, players somehow require far too much detail and I think kind of pointless management for them to feel that the game isn't cheating them in some way. And... Do you, want to give an, do you want to give an example? Well, like that, that, uh, um, yeah, like uh, that distant, distant wars or distant worlds thing. I, I, I played a little bit of that thing. Uh, that and and um, I'm not a big fan of it yet. Maybe I'll become yeah. a fan of it later. But and and obviously Master of Orion three. But um, and and even for war games like the. Uh, um, John Tiller games with the, you know, 8 million units and, and just way too much going on. And my my contention is that this, I mean, that's what killed Flight Sims, and that's sort of a, a that's sort of a, a cliche, and I don't think anybody thinks that, you know, there's anything insightful in that. There probably isn't, but uh, I think that there was a time when games like uh, Falcon 3.0 and, uh, you know, I, I uh, let's see what else. Probably like uh, A10 Cuba. Um, some games that were clearly complex, but not so comp- not so complex that you had to you know devote you know uh, you know eight hours a day to try to learn how to play them. 
I think that there was sort of a curve where gaming and a person's sort of normal attention kind of, there was a confluence of those two things because I think gamers really respond to the idea that a game is doing everything that it can do. You know, it's sort of pushing the limits of what the computer can simulate. And I think that, you know, early on, gamers were just sort of, uh, you know, they were just pleased that you could have little pictures on the screen and move them around and, you know, one could fight the other one. And then I remember how, you know, the initial war games, I was just I was just amazed that there was an infantry guy and a tank guy and that one could fight the other one and then one would win. I mean, that was, and it was on my, it was on basically my TV screen. And that was so amazing that I just was fine with it. Um, but then, you know, gamers wanted more and more stuff. And I think that there was a, that there sort of got to be a point where things that people could sort of reasonably manage and what a game could reasonably portray sort of were were equal or there was a, there was sort of a, a perfect confluence of those two and at that I think there were a lot of great games at that point because at that point people sort of felt challenged but they didn't feel overwhelmed and they felt that the game was basically pushing the limits of the of the technology, which I think is really important to a lot of gamers. I don't think they, they respond well when games, uh, you know, are sort of behind the curve. So the technology was basically doing everything it could, and that just pretty much satisfied what gamers could handle from a you know on a leisure basis. Um, and that's when there were a lot of flight sims that you had to do a lot of things, but you could sort of master it. Then once technology sort of took off, you could do so much more with a game than what a reasonable player could control, it, it, it sort of became, you know, point, players sort of gave up on the idea that you could control everything in a game. And I think controlling everything in a game is, is a lot of what makes it a game. Um, I think Tom had brought up in a previous show about, the, you know, the idea of tweakers and uh, not the crystal meth kind. And uh, the, uh, the idea that they sort of, they went from, play, people went from playing games to sort of, experiencing them and tweaking various aspects of the game while the game sort of went through, uh, you know, its paces. And I think that at the point where, you know, definitely the first imperialism, maybe the second imperialism was already, that was like already like 98, I think. So Yeah, 98, were, 99. Yeah, games are starting to get pretty complex at that point. The technology was taking off. But I think the, the first imperialism really, uh, you know, you had a lot of stuff going on, but the simplified, uh, I think that people still felt that the simplified mechanics weren't dumbed down. They were just, you know, an elegant solution rather than, uh, you know, a deliberate shortchanging of the technology. Because I think now, if you don't put a whole bunch of complex things in your game, uh, you get, uh, you know, you get complaints of, you know, it's too abstract or you know, it's dumbed down, or, you know, why didn't they put in these, you know, 80 other uh, details that, you know, don't really add to gameplay, but add to the experience of gameplay. Um, and I think that back at this time, you could sort of accept the idea of imperialism and the imperialism uh, game mechanics as not being in any way a compromise. And they just happened to be not a compromise, but also extremely challenging and and mm-hmm. and, uh, and and sort of uh, sort of uh, consumed all your attention. So that's my theory. I, whatever it is, I disagree with it. Excellent. 
<laughs> I mean, I, I, I think there are just so many different kinds of games that you can't really apply that. Because I, I can think of some games that are more than happy to just say, you know what, we're going to abstract a lot of this. You only are going to get a, a more sleek, streamlined, focused design, and you're going to have to deal with the fact that we're going to do something like have troops teleport instead of model, loading them on ships, and then I, moving them one sea at, at a time. I agree with you. I agree with you, but I think that, that I don't think that gets done much anymore. I don't think you can really get away with that anymore. Well, what you can't get away with is making a strategy game anymore. I mean, that, that's part oh, that's of it. It's part of like a I, big budget production. And but, I think but that's Bruce, let me, one of the reasons. Well, well, let me throw. So, I think a lot of smaller games, though, are more than happy to do that. I, I was going to point out Solium Infernum, but I think that's a little different. There's a lot of detail and a lot of twiddly stuff in Solium Infernum, and it's like a it's like a fantasy world anyway, so that doesn't really apply. But but think of Warplan Pacific, for instance, which we've talked about. Um, or, or think of there's a there's a, a charming. Let's talk about Warplan Pacific. Warplan Pacific, I'm sorry to cut you off, but you brought it up, so I want to just address that right away because Warplan Pacific, one of the biggest criticisms of Warplan Pacific is that it is a, a simplified, you know, you should read the read the, the Warplan Pacific message boards about all the all the details that people want to add to Warplan Pacific. Oh, good Lord, why would I want to read that? that exactly. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> people don't tolerate that very well. If that time is gone, people, you will, if you make a simplified game, I mean, you'll get some, you know, no. old people like me going, "Oh, you know, that's a great idea," and and, and basically everybody else is like, "Oh, this is, you know, how come you don't have, how come you didn't model, uh, you know, the, you know, uh, pilot right. experience." Right. Well, I think what's going on here, Bruce, is I think you might be extrapolating from disgruntled message board posters uh, a little bit too much about a gaming audience because there there are still games like that being made that that are streamlined that that let loose of that that idea that you have to put a bunch of stuff in there to make it a good project. Like uh, what? Uh, okay. Well, here's another one that comes to mind. There is a there is an excellent little it's an indie game basically done by one guy that's a clone sort of of the Homeworld games those 3D space combat RTSs and the game is called Flotilla and it's a turn based we go movement system just like Combat Mission and it's got a replay Bruce so you'd love it where right. you basically just have a little ballet between I don't think you ever have more than five ships between five ships on each side up to. Uh, and they just sort of drift around the 3D space and shoot each other. Uh, it's very streamlined. Even the, the, there's no bit mapping, for instance, on the, the ships. They're just straight polygons. Very simple, very elegant. Um, there's, a, there's a shooter that recently came out, a Western-themed shooter called Lead and Gold, which is almost like board gamey and this weird abstraction it does. Uh, it's not about like aiming your gun real fast. It's about... Uh, it's about buffing your teammates and sticking together and building up these buffs. Uh, and it, it's not, you know, it's a different genre, but I, I think it's it's a symbol that, that gamers are willing to accept abstraction and simplicity and, and streamlining. Uh, Greed Corp, for instance, is another... Uh, but, but even in defense of Bruce, I mean, that's sort of a new thing. I mean, it's all streamlining and getting back to basics. I mean, for a decade there... Everything had to be bigger, better, louder, more complicated. Oh, sure, sure. So I'm I mean, you're right, right. It goes in waves, but I don't think you can say that these days. I think there are a lot of very important exceptions. Supreme Commander 2, yeah. which we've talked about, even StarCraft 2, uh, I, I think is a willingness for games to say, you know what? Rather than add a bunch of junk in there, we're going to go with some abstraction, some simplicity, some streamlining, uh, and, and we're going to try that. 
So, so Bruce, while, while what you're saying might be the case with some people, I, I do think there are some very important exceptions there. Uh, uh, and, and the, go ahead. I, I understand that, but I, I'm not. I'm. I, I don't count the, all the like little indie games where one guy made. Of course, one guy's going to make a little simple game because that's the only way you can do that. I'm saying that right. people aren't going. Those games are no longer. You you cannot. You really can't release a game. Well, you're you're right. You're gonna you're gonna you're gonna contradict me right here and say, well, you can't re, you can't release a strategy game. Period. But um, you know, I don't think you can really. You could you definitely couldn't get away with a major strategy game release that was turn based. You certainly couldn't deal with a major strategy game release that was uh, turn based and, and and simplified or abstract in any way. I think this these are the last games where uh, where you really saw you know. Uh, um, you know what was considered a major release be done in in this kind of uh, streamlined way. I'm not willing to. I'm not really willing to concede the point because I think that. Well, how? Go ahead. Well, how old is Civilization Revolution, for instance? I, I mean, that right there is a prime example. They took a huge uh, AAA franchise, as much as you can get that in strategy gaming, and they streamlined it. They made it board yes, gamey. They abstracted a bunch of stuff. Revolution is played on, on on what platform? Uh, I think only on PCs, I believe. <laughs> no. Three, three. no, it's a console. It's on. It's on the iPhone for Pete's sake. Yeah, there no, you it's go. A it's an iPhone yeah. game. Well, it's on the 360, three sixty, three sixty, and DS, and the iPhone. Right, right. It's a console release. I mean, it, it's it's on the system that all other games are on these days. Uh, okay. Well, if, if you want, if you want to, if you want to concede my point that people that that uh, uh, there are, there aren't really any complex strategy games being made uh, because. Uh, Everything is coming out on consoles, and you can't have that kind of game on a console. Then yeah, that's fine with me. But <laughs> what did I just get myself game, I mean, into? Come on, iPhone, please. You're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna, your, your counterexample is on the iPhone. I mean, whatever. Well, it's on the 360 first. I was, I was, I was thinking of platforms that you could play it on because I know you have an iPhone. Uh, but it was a three. It was, it was Firaxis's attempt to adapt Civilization to a different audience, and and they did that. By doing the exact kind of the things that I, I think you you are saying aren't done anymore, namely right. cutting out features, streamlining the gameplay, upping the pace, doing things that I think made Imperialism too great. Uh, I, I think there is an appreciation for that kind of thing. I, look, I'm as willing to be as despairing about the state of in the industry as the next guy, but in this instance, I think there's a lot of cause for hope. Uh, okay. Well, if you can find me a really good but accessible flight sim that they're going to be releasing anytime soon, please let me know. Well, those are dead. Everybody knows. Yeah. <laughs> You're out of luck there. Hey, what uh, that, I think, oh, that, that, that Birds of Prey thing. Well, Sega just released this week, for down, downloadable for the PS3 and the Xbox 360, uh, Afterburner Climax. Oh, God. I see. I, I refuse to discuss a game that's even called that. So let's, anyway, let's get back to original know, topic. We need to we need to get back to imperialism because I really don't want to shortchange such a great series with like right. half half of a show and then half of a show of of, uh, of sidetracked uh, derailment. Well, so, one thing so I let, what I, what I don't want to talk about imperialism. I want to talk about the one of I think with its best angles and what it did probably better than most grand strategy computer games, and that is the diplomacy. How transparent the diplomacy was. How you knew where you're really, why someone would hate you. You had pretty relatively good ideas who the strong powers or who the weak powers were, and you would really invest in who your friends were going to be. And you would have the sense that I spent money to sucker to sucker that nation into my orbit, and now it's going to ally with somebody else. Hell no. And you could have a war over that. 
Um, and I really like how the diplomatic stuff was, just as Tom was saying about the resources, how it was all discrete chunks, you know, sending subsidies and buying one nation's timber just because it's that nation's timber. Uh, all that diplomatic stuff played into the economic game and the grand game uh, back in the old world or in the first game into the Congress. And it's an example too, Troy, and let's talk specifically yep. about it, of how there are a handful of really elegant systems yep. and they all interact so well. There's nothing in here that feels like it was bolted on like right. espionage in, in, in Civ Four, for instance. Right. I mean, everything Absolutely. has this, this really elegant board gamey feel where there's a handful of systems and they interact beautifully. And you can always see those interactions. It's very clear. Uh, and yeah, I love the idea that part of how you make friends is you you buy their stuff. You know, uh, they're selling something. So hey, you want to buddy up with a, a minor player in the old world? You buy stuff from him. Uh, I love that. Yeah. And and there's the whole also the whole strategy that with with the uh, the new world, there's the um, possibility that I mean you can either invade uh, the new world and like take the uh, uh, resources by force, or you can sort of buddy up with the uh, with the natives. And, and buy their stuff, and uh, you know you can uh, you can you can buy their you know plantations, uh, and then uh, you know you get a cut of the you get a cut of it as I recall. I mean, there's there's a whole way to sort of ingratiate yeah. yourself with the yeah. natives, and uh, and uh, it's it's completely diametrically opposed to the idea of uh, uh, of the you know uh, military. Uh, Military invasion, and uh, I think it's actually I think it, it, it's well both both way, both methods are viable, but you really have to do their different uh, different ways to go about it, and it, it makes you set up your economy in completely different ways. I mean, there's there's a lot of ways to play that game. Well, also, I mean, in both imperialisms, as I recall, uh, neighboring minor powers or natives were friends with each other. So if you attacked one of them, all of their friends would hate you, and that would hurt their relations. So you had to really. If you were to invest in one corner of the world, you were pretty much cut off militarily from that corner of the world. You couldn't go whacking on your uh, little colony's neighbors. You had to go and do your battles somewhere else. So you really had to pick your spots and hope that you picked. You started sucking up to the nation with gems or gold. There was a lot of gambling involved uh, in it. Um, find, do you want to conquer the mountains or do you want to buy the gold? And it's... Uh, you had to make a lot of hard choices early, and I'm not sure many strategy games forced you to make as many hard choices as imperialism did from pretty much the early going, from the very first turns. As you said, Bruce, about how you, know, you could starve yourself to death uh, or pretty quickly uh, if you weren't paying attention to your food budget because you're investing in all this other glamorous stuff. Wow, I can get spices, but right. meanwhile your <laughs> farms are lying fallow uh, because they're just not sexy. You could shut yourself. I mean, you could lose yourself the game in the very early going and just be completely hosed and and not really. I mean, I mean, I know that that's in some ways true in, in other turn based strategy games, but uh, but uh, in, this, in in imperialism, you would, would almost not even notice it, right? Because you were just so you were such a race to get enough food to just support your economy, yeah. and uh, uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, you get a message that uh, you know your neighboring major power has, you know, twice the labor pool you do, uh, and you're just struggling to keep everybody fed. So, um, uh, you know, it, it was a real, it's a very demanding game. I have a, there's a little anecdote I can tell you uh, about how great this game really is. Um, how great is this game? Please tell us the story. This game is so great. This is, well, let's see, how long ago did this come out? Like 11 years ago? 12, 11, 12 years ago? Um, 
when I was in graduate school, uh, one of my best friends came out to visit, and uh, he had come out, I think, like, on a Thursday night. We'd gone out to dinner, and then uh, I had to, I basically was still had to work in the lab on Friday, and he was just kind of going to hang out and uh, wait for me, and I would, we were going to just do stuff for the weekend. I think we were going to go to, like, a football game or something. But um, point is, when I left in the morning, I just casually said to him, I was like, hey, um, I got this game. Uh, and he was, a, you know, he's a computer gamer, so, uh, and he likes strategy games, so I said, hey, you know, here's this game, Imperialism 2, uh, I just got it, um, I haven't really gotten too much into it, I haven't had time, but, uh, it's installed, here's the CD, because it was one of those things where you had to have the CD in the drive to play, and, uh, I get, why don't you, uh, why don't you, uh, just check it out if you get bored, and then, uh, I'll come back and, uh, uh, after I'm done with lab after work, and uh, we'll go out to dinner and then go, you know, bar and drink some whatever. I got home. We spent the entire rest of the weekend, I think, like going through Imperialism 2 and trying to figure out the game and sort of, uh, um, you know, pick apart the mechanics and figure out. And it, it was how we kept getting killed. We kept, you know, kept losing the game. But uh, we're, we're very gladly. Uh, wasted an entire weekend just kind of getting into imperialism too. That was the days when I had an entire weekend to spend just sitting with a friend when playing a computer game. But um, uh, and I don't regret that one bit. And it, and that game really sustained you know like intense analysis by two computer nerds uh, trying to figure out how best to beat the system. Um, I think it's a really a very deep game, and uh, it also um, the the thing that like and we keep. We keep uh, returning to it, but the the old world and the new world dichotomy really made that game, and uh, just exploring, and all of a sudden, uh, the feeling of having your uh, your little explorer guy goes out, and you're searching the desert, and you're searching the desert, and all of a sudden, yes, you know, you get the diamond, uh, uh, or gems, or whatever, uh, resource, um, and then you're, you know, crazily trying to, you know, build roads and be able to, you know, exploit that resource so you can get it back to the uh, uh, back to the old world and use it to pay for your pay for your military because the, um, because the, those resources were free money yeah exactly yeah free money basically so and the thing is too you could see the other uh, old world countries sending their explorers around right you're right. like oh I got to get in there before they yeah. find it you yeah. know yeah. 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 <laughs> and you could yeah. see like their explorer like heading down that little range of mountain and you're thinking no turn turn around go the other way there's nothing down here I've already looked <laughs> there's this sense really that you know there were these great treasures and you had to beat the other guys to them uh, right. it wasn't like a city builder or uh, you know there wasn't enough room for everyone right uh, and uh, and um I think that another thing about the game was that it uh, you it really forced as 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 Troy brought up about the diplomacy. You know, you really had to play the diplomatic game. It was very really counterproductive to uh, to try to just um, you know conquer countries and just take things over. You had to sort of play the and the, play the diplomacy game so that uh, you had the right friends at the right time, and you really had to know when it was time to um, because you you built these sort of alliances. And they got kind of locked in after a while, and you had to yep. spend a lot of resources to turn countries from you know from one side to the other. And often you tried to get other countries to attack uh, and force uh, you know your enemies to break their uh, you know to break their non-aggression pacts or whatever agreements that they had. 
because uh, doing so yourself was so catastrophic. So the, 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 I agree the diplomacy game was a, was a completely um, sort of another very complex and, and satisfying thing in itself. But also so simple because it wasn't a diplomacy where there were a whole lot of surprises uh, where you could pretty much expect, you could predict what was going to happen or within a certain range of uh, expectations. It's not like right. you wouldn't have an enemy just stab you in the back for nothing. I mean, right. say, I'm, I'm terribly weak, so they're going to come and get me. That's one thing. They're going to yes. stab me in the back there. Sure. Uh, but generally, you know, you know why somebody doesn't like you. Uh, right. Or why they see you as easy prey. It's not like the Total War games, where they decide you're doing pretty well, so it's time to put an AI opponent against you uh, for no reason. So is that what happens sometimes? Oh. Tom, Tom <laughs> hates it. Tom hates it more than I do. You can ask you should ask him. Oh uh, yeah, it's very schizophrenic uh, diplomacy. Well, you kind of have to do that. I mean, a lot of times yeah. diplomacy is used as a uh, as a cover for bad AI, for instance. Like, like it's a contrived well, way well, to make the game challenging. Well, it's also uh, this 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 belief that you know uh, international politics is all balance of power. Uh, that you know when it's a great power, somebody's always going to balance against it. And if the power is uh, the human player, then the people are going to naturally going to keep it down. So that's not really how international politics works. Not everyone balances. Sometimes there are people who bandwagon. Sometimes there are historic friendships um, uh, that keep nations together. But this you know, belief that there's always a balance of power going on, that you need that to have a good game and a convincing game, uh, I think is an issue as much as the AI is. Yeah. Game design. And you can see that, I mean, and, and like you're saying, you see that balance of power build up until, by necessity, in order to win the game, it yeah. finally breaks at the yeah. end. And then, and there's, there's, uh, it has this almost World War One feel, where you get all of these interlocking relationships and alliances and grudges, and then at one point, it all crumbles into this international Armageddon, this geopolitical go to your dom room, where everybody has to fight until the end and, yeah. and tear each other's territory up, and uh, yeah. But the yeah, war is yeah, always really, it, about something, though. Right, right. It always, it's, right, it's always about something. So it's right, not, some yeah. territory, it hinges on the conquest of some territory, or somebody wants some resource, and then it just is a ripple effect that goes out from there, and everything yeah, exactly, gets sucked in. Uh, uh, what about, so I don't know what this does for you guys, but Bruce, you mentioned earlier uh, the fountain. And I don't know where this comes from, but I have... Maybe it is from video games like colonialism and whatnot, but I have this almost gut reaction to hearing about things like, uh, you know, like sugar plantations and spice farms and gems and mountains. I mean, that's such a click for me. That is such a hook. I hear that and I'm like, I want to play a game about that. <laughs> right. Uh, right. You know, the concept yeah. of shipping spice across the ocean. That right there. That's what that's what I want in a game. I just so I react so strongly to that. Uh. Yeah, I mean it's the idea of you know sort of discovering the valuable in the unknown, right? I mean it's it's the same as having a chest and opening it, and there's a plus to sort of killing that guy, right? <laughs> yeah, right. I mean it, it's it's that's it's 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 the uh, it's the oh look I got the you know oh look I got the new suit of armor oh I got the uh, and and um, you know. It's it's the same as uh, you know the Heroes of Might and Magic two. You have the big you know mountain range, and there's the treasure chest, and you know that if you send the uh, you know the hero up to the you know that treasure chest, he's going to either get to choose between uh, you know uh, a thousand experience points or advanced frostbolt, right? 
I mean, I, I think that, I, I just think that kind of, um, I mean, games are all about building this, you know, this alternate reality where you can go and forget that you've got to go to work at 4 o'clock in the morning tomorrow. And um, You do? Well, uh, some people do. I don't know about I don't. you guys. Yeah, exactly. And um, so I, I, agree, I completely agree with you. There's something about, uh, because, you know, exploiting resources, uh, besides the fact that it's always good, um, is, uh, I mean, there's, it, it hooks into a lot of the things that I think gamers really, uh, um, one of the reasons people play games is they have these imaginations that want to, want to, uh, uh, want to tie into, you know, historical events and, um, you know, these are, you know, big, uh, themes of, you know, nation, national development that, uh, People want people want a game. I mean, that's why they that's why they have games like uh, you know East India, um, you know whatever coffee. Tea well, it's also Starbucks. yeah, but it's yeah. also yeah that whole chest analogy works. But I think that historical bit you were referencing there, Bruce, is in a way even more important because for for those of us who really like history and and paid attention to that part of school and still like reading about it. This is the kind of game that really taps into this concept of manifest destiny, and uh, and it even gets a little theological. You, you think of this idea of you know man having domain over the earth, and the new world is a uh, it's like a new Canaan, a land of milk and honey, and th- there, there's something biblical about that, about coming to this new without any religion in the game. Exactly right, and they because that's implicit, you know. <laughs> they, they didn't put in a gameplay system, but that's the implication. There is that there's this new world, and and you have a God given destiny to conquer it and yeah. and exploit it. And uh, we, we could do an entire show about exploration in games and what it means, uh, because it's just oh, a rich and fertile topic, and so many great games and bad games have tried to do with each of exploration, so maybe I'll put that in the docket, because I do think uh, Tom is onto something as to why these games have such internal appeal, and I'm, I'm, I have the same weakness. Give me something in the colonial period, uh, and I'm hooked, and it's not as big a hook as, you know, give me some Praetorians to fight, to fight with, but it's a start. Um, yeah. And they... they they realize that, and they, yeah. you know, there's all that, even though, so I love also, this helps, and this is something that, that Paradox doesn't quite understand, or at least has given up on, but the randomness is such yeah. a huge part of that, uh-huh. is you, you're not sure, you know, the Aztecs aren't always going to be next to the Incas, and the Sioux and the Cherokee aren't always going to be in the northern part of the continent, I mean, there, well, there's this. France is an island, for God's sake. Right, exactly. <laughs> Landlocked France. I mean, of sea. France that's out at, at sea. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the names are just names. I mean, even the first imperialism, they, they were all the names were made up. Um, only in imperialism too did they give them actual historic national names, which you can change, by the way. Yes. You can play as as you know, Chickland, if you so desire. Uh, and I love you can name which, which, which sadly is not as full of chicks as the name will let you be lead you to believe. <laughs> but they also put like this is another thing. I was making a list of some of the really cool names, and you can ignore this if you want, for like territories and seas uh, that they give. Like when you're sailing across the ocean, yes. here's a few yes. that you come across: uh, the briny ocean. I love uh-huh. that name. Uh, here's one: Sea of Frog. Little <laughs> nod. It's so cute. Uh, but my favorite has to be, and I don't know if this is in every one, I, I assume it's like a, a name generator, uh, Wine Dark Sea. Yes. You, you know, a, a little nod to home. I love that. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, that yeah. helps that sense of discovery. Yeah. The randomness and just giving things names is, is yeah. always awesome. Uh. <laughs> kind of like Dominions. Okay, oh, yes. sure. sure, why not? It's all like Dominions. Uh, and then, of course, this is Frog City's last great game. Uh, as I recall, they did Trade Empires. Yeah, I think Trade Empires. Oh, what a broken mess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Trade Empires had issues. Uh, I moderately fond of it, but uh, this was just such a great design, and for our listeners, yes, I did try to get uh, both uh, the Spiths and uh, Miss Bernstein on the show, but they decided that, they argued that they hadn't played the game in so long, barely remembered building it, uh, and would prefer to just have us talk about it, since clearly our love for it uh, continues. Uh, and of course, I wrote an essay about imperialism in my series on maps, and that will be linked at the bottom of the podcast, along with uh, a link to Bruce's article, which I found online. Oh, you found it online? Interesting. I did. Um, I guess, you know, that's a shame, though, because I think so much of these... One of the things that I find... I mean, I, I was uh, reading Tom's uh, uh, Tom's blog on the SIFI channel, and uh, he was talking... He made a comment about how he's really not interest in the business of gaming. And, and to some extent, I agree with that. But I, I have to say that the business of gaming aspect that I really do enjoy is the, uh, is the, is the history of business of gaming, or sort of the, the personalities of, of who made these old games. Absolutely. And I think there's a real value to um, just sort of preserving that and just kind of reminding people that, hey, here's, you know, here are these people, and they made this great game, and, uh, okay, fine, they haven't played it in ten years. So what? I mean, it, just capturing those people's thoughts about even how they remember the game now or yeah. you know, any tidbits they have about making the game I think is so important because so much of the stuff gets lost and it's, you know, I mean, people don't even remember, the, most people don't even know the game, they don't remember the box. I mean, there's so much value to these things. Just I, value, I, I, and sort of in my mind, as, a, as just a someone who enjoys games who doesn't get to play games really anymore hardly uh, but just has such fond memories of all these fantastic uh, products that you know people made and and I just I really want to link the people with the product and 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 remind everybody hey uh, you know you had this great thing that was you know a product of the 90s late yep. 90s and here are these people and and hey to the best of your recollection, give us one thing about making imperialism or well, I mean, idea you had or whatever. To Bill Spites credit, he did contribute to my map essay uh, last spring. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Bill Spites certainly remembers some of it. Uh, but yeah, they begged off the podcast, didn't want to sit for an hour of me fawning uh, over if, them. But if, it, if it's just not wanting to sit for an hour, I mean, hey, I, that, that's fine with me. Yeah. I, mean, I can barely keep myself awake, too, but... Um, but uh, no, I, I would love to have them, and they're always welcome. I had the good fortune to meet, uh, to have met uh, Rachel Bernstein a couple of times. She's works for EA now, saw at E3, and took the time to tell her how much I loved imperialism. Go ahead. Before we wrap up, there's a couple of things in my notes that I, I wanted to bring up. Uh, yeah. What do you guys feel about the tactical combat? Terrible. Oh, Hate it. terrible. Hate it. <laughs> Why would you even mention that? Here we are saying if you love the game and you mentioned the tactical I, combat. No, I know. 
I just want to throw that. I mean, so I, I think the way to like play it? Imperialism 2 is to turn off tactical combat and just let the battles auto-resolve, partly because the AI is really bad in tactical combat, but also because I feel it, it hurts the basic flow of the game. Yeah. Uh, it, it really does bring everything to a screeching halt, and now you're playing uh, a, a slightly uninspired yeah. little tile-based oh, war. So broken. But one of the things, though, that, it, that is an important part of the game, and I really miss this in the tactical combat is the importance of artillery and fortifications and how that changes the equation yep. yeah. and and you don't really see that when you're just running the auto battle generator you know right. when you're just hitting auto auto generate for the battles yep. which is unfortunate right. um, okay another thing does it so when colonialism came out uh each nation had unique powers like like unique abilities that no other nation got wait colonialism is the is isn't that, isn't that the game where you were the American Revolution game? Yeah, colonial. Is it colonialism? Colonialization? What's the name <laughs> of it? Colonization. 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 Okay. Yeah, that's <laughs> the one where that's the, that's the American Revolution game. Yeah. Right, right. Where you work your way up to a revolution. Yeah. Uh, but it had for each and taking a page from Civ Four. Although I think the, actually the original colonization did this each yeah. nation had specific powers like the the french were better with the indians the spanish were better conquistadors the dutch were awesome traders uh they don't do anything like that in imperialism too do you guys feel that it suffers at all for that no okay do you not that it well not that it suffers but that, that that's kind of something that I, I don't know if the actual game mechanics would support it but it's something that i kind of miss is that Spain and Portugal feel very different. There's something distinct about them each mm -hmm. game. Or that, that England is always going to have a specific kind of, you know, like a naval priority or, right. or something like that. Uh, it's not an, object, an objection so much as an sure. observation. I, mean, I never got the sense that, you know, as, as historically rooted as the themes of the game were, I never got much sense that it was really, that Imperialism was about history. Uh, I mean, like I said, the first imperialism, all the names are random. Uh, it didn't make any difference which nation you were. And I think they only added uh, the names in Imperialism 2, both because players demanded to have some sort of nations they recognized instead of, instead of Lilliput and Blafuscu, uh, or whatever they were. Well, uh, I would argue, though, Troy, that uh, that's not so much a facet of history as, as personality. Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll accept that. Um, but I, I don't... Go ahead, Bruce. The thing that really bothered me is not that the nations didn't have their own specific powers, but that they didn't have, like, leaders who were identifiable who had wisdom, strength, dexterity, and charisma. Did <laughs> you level those leaders up? Is that how yes, it should work? If, like, if they, they did that, then I would feel better about everything. Now, Bruce, would the leaders need, like, a paper doll inventory so you could yes, equip them with different sure. armor and oh, weapons? I agree, yeah. Yes. And they'd have to have a tri-cornered hat. <laughs> uh, it's also worth pointing out because I, I spent yesterday jumping back into the game mm -hmm. and realizing that like you guys are saying you have to play several failed games before you realize what went wrong and how I can't remember the last time I won a game of Imperialism 2 well, you put it put it on retard level. That's a, by the way, when you set up a game, it's full of different settings. I'd forgotten this. It is so flexible in terms of how you want to play and what special rules to implement and what advantages to give the computer or not give the computer. Yep. And uh, but but it's also and I'd forgotten this uh, for a game that old. It is incredibly well documented within the game. Yep. You know, 
bringing up the little encyclopedia, the little tooltip options. I've got the manual here, and I was looking forward to reading it, but unfortunately, I didn't have to because everything is explained within the game. It, it's it's a great instance of that in-game documentation that, that we so rarely got back then. Yeah, uh, yeah it kind of sucks so. you didn't have to read the manual. Although the manual's not that great. There is a, there is a strategy guide uh, that I picked up on uh, eBay for like... Uh, like a dollar and like a dollar twelve or something like that. Wow, what was that like? Uh, it's actually pretty good. I mean, it's like uh, it's similar to the um, uh, Roman whatever six hundred forty k per day. Ah, right, right. Uh, but it's in that. It's in that. It's in that. Uh, it's in that mold. It's, it's not. It's not. It's it's well done. I, it was more of a nostalgic thing. I, I this and when I say I, I picked it up on eBay, I, I picked it up on eBay like four years ago. Um, but uh, I still have it somewhere. That's got Do you guys have fortune. original copies of Imperialism too? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And Imperialism. Yep. yep. I, got both. I have my original Imperialism because yeah, I'm sitting here. It's a great. I love that big old box with the like. You wouldn't have many games these days where the main feature is a brooding conquistador's face. Yes. <laughs> well, no, you would. You it would just be like part of it. You'd be like half robot, half zombie, a cyborg, and, a cyborg zombie conquistador yeah, would flip. Exactly, yeah. Right. Right. And you, yeah. <laughs> Settlers Nine or whatever. Now, by the way, I I don't. I, there are similarities in Settler Seven and Imperialism. They both have that idea we talked before about resources as discrete units and yeah. not stuff that you just pile up. Settler Seven, I would say, uh, has some important points of commonality with Imperialism too that make it a good game. And that, by the way, Bruce is another example of a game that that is willing to abstract a lot of stuff. You know, they went from a real finicky city builder to this game with all these really cool board game abstractions. And wow. I, you know, well, I, mean, I hope it's doing well for them. Everybody, everybody's listening to me. Then I'm like the uh, I'm like the Pied Piper of game design. That's true. They might have gone forward in the future, heard what you said, and then taken their time machine back to change their development. Yeah. Well done, Bruce. Well played. Yeah, I've done it. Yes, exactly. Well, that was uh, this week's show. Next week, we're going to have uh, we're going to talk about uh, Gettysburg: Scourge of War with Norb Timko and one of his history guys from uh, Norb Software. They'll be talking about uh, what it takes to make a civil war game. Uh, his history with the Take Command games and uh, Is this the Mad Minute guys. Uh, one of them, yeah. Wow! Wow! You're gonna have that? Oh, nice. Yeah, do, 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 you can be on the show if you want, Bruce. I can, I, I, I can. Unfortunately, can, my job is to say about Can it. we bring up, during the Civil War thing, can we bring up uh, We Rule? No one wants to help you with your iPod farm. Oh, oh for Pete's sake. <laughs> what? Ah, uh, Troy, you just exposed yourself as not being very hip. <laughs> yeah, exposed myself as not being very hip. That was in such great debate. Uh, so that's next week's show. Uh, if you have any ideas for other classic game designs you'd like us to talk about, please let them be strategy games and not farming games. Uh, please drop me a line. And, uh, guys, thanks for the show. Thank you. I, I really dug the, the excuse to go back, install Imperialism 2 and play it. By the way, oh, we, we, we should play. Is- it installs and runs on Windows 7 with no problem. Yeah, oh. I know. I, I, I have it installed right now, and we should definitely play. And also, there should be a link to the Tom vs. Bruce Imperialism 2 game at the bottom of this podcast. If I can find I it. Must. 
If I can find it, I'll certainly link it. Say goodnight. Good night, everyone. Good night, gamers. Yeah.